this is kind of a good thing. We're actually mm -hmm. training users on a massive scale to recognize certain design patterns, right? And these design frameworks, it's also important to keep in mind, they kind of came along as a natural progression out of necessity. Yeah. Hello everyone, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. My name is Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt and I'm a growth engineer here at HubSpot and we are not joined by Jeff today. Uh, he was unavailable and our plan was to make fun of him because that's been a tradition every single time I'm not on the show. Austin and Jeff always talk crap about me when I'm not there. So we're going to try and do that about Jeff except that Right before we came here to record, he did an enormous favor for me in that I broke a bit of code. And he's just like, nah, man, I got it. And he fixed it for me. So now I feel too bad to actually make fun of him. Uh, so thank you, Jeff. You're a very nice person. <laughs> uh, so for today's episode, uh, there's been this debate that's been going on in the design community, the web design community, the UX community. Um, and it's been a really kind of harsh debate in a sense. Uh, it's all been sort of catalyzed by this article from bladderthan10.com called Design Machines, uh, or how to survive the digital apocalypse. And the article is basically all about how websites today all look the same, right? And it, it kind of goes back to like that uh, episode we had a, a little while ago about design trends and what design trends really are and the difference between organic design trends and non-organic design trends. But this article is speaking a little, a little deeper and, and talking specifically toward uh, what we're calling the bootstrap era. And we want to yeah. talk a little bit about like, what is the bootstrap era? How did it come to be? And what does it mean? Like, what are the implications of it? Um, so just to, to set up this, this debate a little bit, I've, I've, had this debate, I think now four times in person, <laughs> countless times online. I can't even remember. Uh, have you have you run into this before, Austin? Oh yeah, yeah. So yep. I've I've run into it a couple times online. Um, people are more passionate online, so it's it's uh, it's definitely more intense there. But even in the workplace, so this is something that like especially in the last year or so has gotten really intense. Like everybody wants to talk about this for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's so strange to me because the thing that stands out to me the most whenever I hear anyone talking about how all websites look the same today and either they're saying it's a bad thing or it's a good thing, uh, the thing that jumps out to me is that we never hear anyone outside of our industry bring this up. Yeah. Right. I, if I ask any of my friends or my family that don't work in the web industry, aren't designers, and I ask them, hey, what do you think of the way that websites look today? They say a lot better than they used to, right? Mm. They don't care that a lot of websites look similar. Right. This they is, just care that they're usable. This is an internal discussion between right. people that are very buried mm -hmm. in this trade. That's interesting. You know, that that's is an interesting good thing. Point. You know, it's, it's a, good to discuss these things and kind of drive the industry forward in a sense. Yeah. But at the same time, is it worth having the debate and going at being this intense about it, I yeah. guess? Well, I, I think that probably more than anything, you have to, to remember that, you, you know, as designers, our perspective on the world is completely different than 
that of our users. I have like interesting moments where um, I'll, you know, we'll push something uh, live to our site and uh, it may have like 10 extra pixels of padding or something mm -hmm. like that, and it just drives me up a wall. <laughs> um, and then of course we'll fix it. That's you know always like a e really easy thing to catch for, for somebody with a, an eye that is trained mm -hmm. for design. Yet at the same time, I've purposely run user tests where I'll like just completely break a page and like see how a user behaves on it, where it's like, you know, you'll make an image like three times the size that it needs to be, and it's like messing with the with the columns and it's pixelated and everything. And users won't even comment. Like they don't even notice it. Mm -hmm. Because their their understanding of design is completely different from ours. Right. In other words, we're just so deep in the weeds that we can't really see what's going on outside of right. it. Right. <laughs> um, that's totally true. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the debate itself. What are the two sides here? Um, so the side that this article takes, Design Machines, um, that kind of catalyzed this whole discussion, uh, is that it's a bad thing. It's, it's a very opinionated article. Um, and they go on to make quite a few points, some of which certainly hold true, and others I, I don't think hold true uh, and kind of fall apart pretty quickly. Right, so we've basically got two core sides to this argument. Mm -hmm. The first of which is, uh, against the the design the design machines that we've created against like this bootstrap era these prototypical common designs that we're seeing and then the second camp is in support yes of uh, the designs from from a completely different angle so you do you want to kind of just walk us through what the design machines article says because that's that's the first camp that's the one that's against these designs yeah, so the first things that they're talking about is everything looks the same and that this is a bad thing, users are fatigued, um, and we're creatively stunted. And that's I think that's a legit point, like feeling like you don't have creative freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's this argument for why uh, bootstrap sites are bad usually comes from the web designers and the UI designers because Web design is such a personal thing, you know. If you're if you're so passionate about it and you love designing websites and making them look just perfect, you you, you really feel a connection to it. And when you see that anyone can just put up a good looking website nowadays just by bootstrapping it in five minutes or less, you're kind of just it just takes a little bit out of you, I guess. And you're just like, why couldn't you put more time and effort into this and trying to like make it better and trying to make the web a more personalized, creative, uh, interactive place. Like, why do you have to just do the same thing that everyone else is doing? Um, and so I totally get that. Um, but at the same time, we always have to recognize that, well, we are not designing to fulfill our own needs, I think is the counter argument against that. Uh, some other points that are made in the article um, is metrics obsessed pseudoscience, which is interesting. And in there, he was essentially talking about how data-driven design and data-driven design as a means of creating these design frameworks and establishing these uh, design and behavioral patterns that are used in design frameworks, such as um, different colors to use for buttons, different uh, grid systems to use that are effective and usable. Um, the data that we collect that moves us in those directions, he's saying, is a pseudoscience and we can't take it too seriously, mm -hmm. right? And we're just too obsessed with the metrics and we're just kind of making this stuff up and we're, we're misinterpreting the data um, to kind of meet our own needs for what we think things should be. 
Yeah. I uh, think that he goes even deeper than that, almost mm -hmm. to say as if we're completely losing ourselves in the data and that it's becoming mindless and that there's no real direction. It's just idiocy. Yes. Uh, so he, in, in all like clearness, he, he actually takes a very hard stance against data, mm -hmm. which is, um, it's interesting. Right. It, that's, I think that's, there's a legit point to be made there. And we've, we've certainly seen it all, all the time in, in the tech industry it is when companies are too data driven. Mm -hmm. And when you're too data driven, sometimes you kind of lose that bigger picture perspective of how does this thing actually make people feel, yeah. right? Yeah, we may have like shoved more people through the funnel, but in through the process of shoving them, like we're we're literally like whacking them through, and they're just like, "Ow, oh, stop it! Okay, I'll go through," mm -hmm. and then they have a crappy experience, and uh, they just perceive your brand in a lesser way that might hurt you later on down the road that you don't see initially by right. just focusing so much in on that data. Um, which is totally true, and uh, that's something that we've certainly talked about. I know uh, at some company meetings here at HubSpot, we use this term, um, data-inspired. We don't mm -hmm. want to be just like totally, totally analytical. We want to also kind of remember that human side to the data and try to be very methodical and mindful as we're interpreting it and thinking about what is actually happening, what could be um, the behavioral triggers that lead someone to take an action or that explain these quantitative data points that we're looking at. Uh, the next thing that he talks about is, again, copycat culture. And the big issue with copycat culture is really that we're not moving the design industry forward. We're not moving the web forward as a medium. If we're because all just we're all doing the same thing, we're just other. kind of stagnating, yeah. which I think is legit too. Um, but that being said, like you don't have to be a copycat. You know. Uh, you can be as creative as you want in your own website. And it's really just a question of, well, hey, if, if you're just trying to get something out there quickly, like what, what's the context? Are you just trying to get something out there that's quick and usable? Bootstrap might be a good solution. Sure, it might look like everything else, but does that matter for this use case, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in other cases, maybe your brand, part of your, your brand for some company is that it's unique and provocative, right? And if part of your brand is trying to be provocative, you can't do what everyone else is doing because that's going to go against what you're trying to get across to mm -hmm. the people that are, are looking at your website. And so you have to be unique. You have to be original. You have to be creative. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't quite buy into, into this as much because I think it's just so contextually based. And I think that the people that are using Bootstrap to create these sites that all look the same um, probably wouldn't have invested a ton of time into the design of their website anyway, or maybe just may have not have created it. Mm -hmm. um, so what we're, have, what we're seeing instead is probably a little bit more of that websites that would have looked really, really, really bad and would have been just like really crappily, like kind of just like smushed together in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, now at least are presentable. Yeah. And they all look the same, but they're there and they're usable, which is probably better than the former. Mm -hmm. um, the next point is crap content selling crap. Uh, and the way I always think about this, I, I think of it as kind of like the crap content world. We see it all the time today, mm -hmm. you know, which is um, you, you just go on your Facebook stream or you go anywhere in the web and you're just bombarded with all these articles, all these marketers that are trying to uh, have you read their content. And a lot of the times it's not content that is worth looking at. A lot of the times it's crap content. And the argument that's being made here is that, 
well, when all websites look the same, we're not treating our content with care. We're just, Mm -hmm. it's a numbers game in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? We're just, we have this quota of 100 articles that we need to get out in a week. We don't care what those articles are. They just need to be written, pasted onto this um, template that we already have for our blog and just published and we'll just promote the crap out of it and people will read it. We'll yeah. get people to sign up via the modal or they'll view the ads and we'll make our money back on it. And that is a very machine-like approach to content marketing um, and is certainly uh, not, a, a, I guess, it, it, it depends on the context of your business, but that is almost, there's almost always a better way to go about that, yeah. I would say. Um, so I, I do think that that's a le- legit concern as well. Um, but again, it's, I think there's a question in there of like, well, how much do you want to invest in your content? And I guess the bigger question is, should you even be writing content for your business in the first place? Like, is that a strategy that you should be leveraging at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just kind of pumping out this crap content all the time like that, uh, and no one really wants to read it, mm-hmm. and it's just a numbers game to you, um, take a step back. Is there something better you can be doing? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it just, it, it seems to me like when I see things like my local pizza shop starting to, to promote articles and start to blog and my local um, salon and stuff like that, it's just like, does this need to be happening? Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of like the feeling in the sense that I get. Um, and that I feel like that's part of where that frustration comes from. It's mm-hmm. just like, you're always being bombarded by these, the same looking website with the same um, mediocre content and it's just like why yeah. you know it's that feeling of, of frustration there uh, and then he goes on to make some other points about like he wants to he wants to be a little bit um, thoughtful in, in his approach to this article and propose solutions so he talks a bit about uh, editorial and magazine design and print design and how the spirit of print design never really died and how uh, editorials in, in, in magazine articles when they're written they're done so with care so that the graphics that are created and the layout that is created is used to augment and enhance the experience of reading whatever the content is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has a purpose to it. And as a result, we're just putting so much more love and care and thought into what we're writing and what we're publishing. Uh, and we don't see that on the web as much. And what he's trying to say is that, why aren't we doing this? Uh, and he gives plenty of examples and he certainly talks to talk with this. Uh, his The article itself absolutely follows kind of like the best uh, practices that he lays out for your content, uh, which is kind of like highly tailoring each section that he's writing about. Every headline has a very custom graphic next to it, uh, is, is in a very custom font that kind of like gets across uh, the emotion that he wants you to be feeling as you're reading this bit of content. But mm-hmm. that argument, I think, also falls apart pretty quickly because, well, print is not a print is not in a, an evolving medium like the web is, mm-hmm. right? With the web, first and foremost, like uh, we're gonna update our themes, we're gonna update our websites, we're gonna update our style sheets, and so it doesn't always make sense to just heavily invest in our content like that, right? If we were, it, it's expensive writing CSS. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of effort, uh, and if we were to put that level of love and care into every single article that we write in our content strategy, well, then when we go to update things, we have to retroactively go back and fix every one of those customized articles. Yeah, just it, 
designing a um, a flexible and uh, dynamic piece of content in the same way that you would design a completely static and predictable piece of content. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not scalable. With print, um, you know exactly, you know, the CMYK colors that are going to be used and what they're going to look like on the exact type of paper that you're going to be using and the exact dimensions and mm -hmm. exactly who's going to be looking at it. Um, with the web, you don't know any of that. You you don't know what device is going to be used, what size that device is, um, what the resol resolution of, of that device is, whereas you know the DPI of, of, of a print document. Um, and then furthermore, you don't know how it's going to change over time mm -hmm. as, as it begins to age. Um, so, okay, so let's do a little bit of a recap for this article, like what our core arguments are. This is what I'm hearing. First and foremost, I think that the gripe that a lot of designers uh, are having right now in this sort of internal, um, internal discussion is that uh, they're seeing something that is personal to them uh, being the, they're seeing the creativity being taken away from it and the mm -hmm. variance being taken away from it. And you said, you know, web design is personal, it's creative. And that's what these peop these designers feel that they're losing as the web uh, becomes to, you know, look similar. Um, we have issues of metrics obsessed pseudoscience where people are leading designs um, with metrics and, and not as much with intuition or expertise or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Um, and some people are, are doing an irresponsible job of that. We have copycat culture where, where best practices that contradict each other are um, convincing us to do one thing and then another thing and none of it is really rooted in any form of reality. Uh, we have crap quantity-based content that's being prioritized over quality content, mm -hmm. uh, where we're basically producing a lot of stuff that search engines like to read, but people don't like to read, despite the fact that the web is made for people. Uh, we have a loss of potential jobs where these smaller sites uh, that you know maybe a freelance designer would have been hired to create uh, are, are now falling into the hands of uh, solutions like Squarespace or Wix. Yeah, I uh, think the counter argument to that though is just like, the people that are purchasing sites on Squarespace and Wix or just bootstrapping and doing themselves and just trying to get it done really, really quickly and cheaply are not the type of people that would have paid a design agency or a web designer to create their website in the right. first place. Yeah. So it's not it's not like we're being cannibalized here and we're losing business. It's right. We'll get like yeah, it's a absolutely. whole different market. Yep. And then as as a solution, what was posed is a is a bunch of ideas that derived from print. Uh, where you know everything was sort of custom tailor-made there was a lot of creative freedom mm -hmm. and things like that so before I sort of get into the other argument of things now that we know like what the first camp the design machines camp feels mm -hmm. in this argument I kind of want to present an argument from a different side from like the UX side right please do so before I get into that the first thing I want us to do is envision the type of design that we're talking about uh, just in case anybody isn't like fully brought up to speed, basically w the type of design that we're discussing here is a prototypical bootstrap design. So um, imagine a like a flat header um, with you know a logo to the left, a few navigation items to the right, and then you're going to have some type of like dramatic hero section 
um, and then you'll have you know some some uh, strong high contrast sans serif copy over it and then uh, there is like a range of different elements that that may be below that copy it could be calls to action buttons uh, maybe an email sign up form whatever it may be and then below that you'll have you know maybe a set of logos or a testimonial or mm -hmm. a product shot or whatever um, and so this is the these design patterns were really solidified through the bootstrap era and what's happened is that we've noticed as as was displayed actually very eloquently in the design machines article that uh, designs are getting closer and closer and closer to looking like each other over and over and over again so that's great like you know when 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 we can take a look at the designs that are that are happening on the web and uh, like from our position say hey these things all look alike this is stupid like why would why would they all look alike um, I think that that's a conversation that we need to have but before we have that conversation I don't think we should be talking as much about what the web looks like but rather why the web looks that way mm -hmm. uh, and approach it from that angle like why why did we get to the place that we are today. So I kind of want to now go through that article with that frame of mind and thus present a different side of this argument. So the first piece that I want to address just right off the bat is the, the argument that web design is personal and it's supposed to be creative uh, and that, that that's what the designer is losing. Uh, I, I can very confidently say that this argument and this sentiment is the direct result of um, inexperience and immaturity in the design community. Um, this is something that I would only expect out of a very junior designer, uh, the type of designer that continues to confuse design with art. Because design is not a form of creative expression. Design is something that is uh, fundamentally different than art, whereas art is a form of creative expression. And the best way to think about this is that art has intrinsic value. The art itself is the product. It's the end result. The art is existent in and of itself. It's self-sustaining. So you create art and then you look at the art and that's the value that you get from it, whatever that might be. Uh, and that is conducive of creative expression. Design does not have intrinsic value. The purpose of design is to help the user uh, accomplish some sort of function where in that the design is an intermediary between a the user and b the action that they're taking um, so where art exists in and of itself design does not it has two loose ends that you have to tie up right and that is where the breakdown of creative expression occurs mm -hmm. and that you creative expression is something that that exists almost wholly within the artist but that's never the case with design because you're not the only stakeholder mm -hmm. in design you have um, different interests and 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 users and businesses and and whatever right. to fulfill but there has to be a little bit more going on I, I agree with that mm -hmm. there has to be more going on here um, from a macro perspective if this debate has gained this much momentum and mm -hmm. everyone's talking about it at this point, it's not just the junior people that are like, why can't I express myself on the websites that I'm working right. on? It, it's got to be a bit more than that, right? Yep. And I think that the reason that we're seeing 
more argument around this is because of the additional points that were laid out in this mm -hmm. article, uh, uh, most of which are actually pretty legitimate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other ways to look at it. So uh, the first the first point, if that's if that's what you know, if creative expression is really what drew you to this argument, I think that you need to reevaluate your understanding of design. Mm -hmm. However, if the other points are what's drawing you to the argument, then um, I think those are legitimate, but they can still be addressed through a why instead of a what. Mm -hmm. So metrics, metrics obsessed pseudoscience. This, um, un unfortunately, I'm going to take a similar stance to what I did in the last point, but I think that it's going to make sense as to why I say this. I think that this is also the result of the author never having been part of a real design team and a real data-driven team, a team that actually understands how to collect data analyze data mm -hmm. and use it in an actionable way. Right. Uh, because the type of issues that he described, uh, they if you if you read them, he's like, you know, how do how do we know that that the you know if if our experiment falls on a holiday uh, and everybody from A doesn't see it and then everybody from B does see it that you know that's that's not going to skew our data. Like right. and that's that's how you get and to if you're splitting traffic properly and you know what you're doing, that's never going to be an issue. Right. Your like, sample sizes will be randomized. Yeah, like all of the gripes that you're seeing there, it's like, dude, like it's very obvious that you just don't know how to set up an experiment. That's not an, that's not an issue of whether or not data is a good thing. That's an issue of you don't understand how to collect and interpret data. I'm, I'm really curious uh, whether or not that's true for this author. Like, mm -hmm. I want to know, like, did he work on any data-driven teams? Because I think that makes sense because, mm -hmm. like, before I really worked on a data-driven team, I thought the same way. Yeah. I thought you can't design by data. Like mm -hmm. you're gonna come out with something that just doesn't like speak about who you are and who you like about your brand and it's not gonna connect with your audience. Mm -hmm. But guess what? There are people interpreting that data and then deciding what to do based on the data that right. they see. It's not and just like, here's the data and this is a pure function of what's yeah. coming out of it. It's a lot more than that. Yeah, so what he was describing was just a very unhealthy approach to mm -hmm. to, to data-driven design. But when you actually get on a team that understands data, what you'll find is that this these designs that we're creating, they're what I like to call data-inspired, mm -hmm. human-centered designs, right? Where you're taking a mix of data and um, you know quantitative type of data and a mix of qualitative type of information and you're putting this together and then you know where the magic really happens is in the interpretation mm -hmm. of the that occurs within the data analyst the UX designer wh whoever it may be that, whose responsibility that falls on but I have the luxury of, of working with a few individuals that are incredibly talented in the data collection and analysis space and the accuracy of the information that they collect and the type of information that they collect is just incredible, mm -hmm. right? And it's extremely empowering and it goes so far beyond the types of examples that, that he gave in, in those articles to the point where the people that I work with will call those examples, the, the metrics that he was measuring there, vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. Those aren't even something that we pay attention to. Uh, so I think that when it's very easy to look at data-driven design and say that it's metrics-obsessed pseudoscience, um, but I think that more before we do that, we have to check our understanding of what right. data-driven design actually is. And at the end of the day, probably what you'll what you'll decide is that yes, this is pseudoscience. It absolutely is. the The, the data that you collect is never perfect. 
but anybody that's good at this would never have said that the data that you collect is perfect. Mm -hmm. They would have said that, that the, the best designs exist somewhere in between. Yes. Uh, and, and you're never going to take a hard line on one or the one end or the oh, other. Absolutely, because this argument that he's making kind of centers around this idea that whatever the data is, is what happens. Right. We throw out data all the time because we're mm -hmm. just like, we just run an experiment, we look at it, we're just like, that can't be true, and we move <laughs> on. You know, it's just, you have to take everything at face value. You yeah. have to be good at interpreting it. You have to be smart. And the argument, this is a direct quote, we, he says, we can't trust the data, and those who do will always be stuck chasing a robotic approach to human connection. Mm -hmm. And that just isn't true. Yeah. Right. Because this is actually enriching the connection that you right. have with We're your users. We're just trying to gain insights yeah. so that we can make a more educated. Um, we can take a more educated stance on what our website should yeah. be. What What are the directions that it should head, and what is the it's overall marketing message that it should have? You know, we're. When you're at the point of like micro optimizing for things like button color and like what is the perfect color of my text over this background color and mm -hmm. stuff like that, yeah, like you can just take that at face value, but you need so many samples in those experiments to like prove that this is what the color should be. It's not even really worth it. And there yeah. aren't a whole lot of people really doing that out there. Yep. I, I would say that data-inspired design is human connection at scale. Yes. We, we have five million people come through our homepage every month. I can't have a human connection with each of them mm -hmm. as individuals, but what collecting really, really high quality uh, and calculated data allows me to do is get one step closer to that human connection with every person that comes through my site. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's, I, I think that there are, are really legitimate points on both ends of that, but I think that the issue again actually goes back to a misunderstanding for the right way to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, with copycat culture, so, so the next issue that he took is that best practices that contradict each other, that's what everybody's following. Um, I, th I think that one is, the, the very simple answer to that is that uh, best, best practices should be used by nobody. <laughs> best, pra best practices are exactly what pave the road to uh, slow failure over time, right? Like you, you sit there and you take best practices and you think, okay, I'm gonna implement this and then you're spending all this time implementing it and it's not even something that was designed within mm -hmm. you know the context of of anything that you've done and it creates like this leaky bucket of time and resources and whatever uh that eventually you find that all of your vc money is dried up mm -hmm. and uh and your best practices got you nowhere because it's what everybody else was doing and you had no competitive advantage and you had no understanding for that matter of what you're actually doing. So I think that the, 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 the copycat culture, um, I think that that's, that's like a natural occurrence. Like that's, that's going to happen regardless of the bootstrap era because it's easy. It's, it's much easier to copy what somebody else is doing than it is to get to know your actual audience and get to know your industry and then understand how the two fit together and then derive a solution from the actual problems that are occurring with your design. Um, so copycat culture is not unique. Uh, it's just something that, uh, you know, serves as, as a lazy out. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think that that is a that's a matter of process. Yeah, and and another side to that that I think about is, hey, guess what? Bootstrap is really big at this point. 
copycat culture has scaled immensely. We're mm-hmm. at the point now. Let me let me pull up these numbers here. Um, we're at the point now where bootstrap websites account for 1.8 percent of the modern internet, mm-hmm. and that's the internet going back through all of time. Yeah, that has to be a much larger percentage of new websites being created today. Yeah, and uh, for that matter, like going all the way back to the end of time and considering, okay, and then how many of those sites that are created now are on Bootstrap and we're impacting the entire internet with that data, uh, how many of the sites that are created today that are on Bootstrap are the really super influential sites right. that we visit There's like every single day? There's probably a good amount day. of them. Exactly. And it's at 6.152 million websites today using Bootstrap, and we're not even talking about the other design frameworks out there. There's quite mm-hmm. a few of that them are actually. Like actually serving the same function. Right. So the number must be much higher. So since there are so many people using these design frameworks, um, copycat culture is scaled. Everything is starting to look the same. An argument that could be made about that is this is kind of a good thing. We're actually mm-hmm. training users on a massive scale across the entire internet, cross site to recognize certain design patterns mm-hmm. that might be good design patterns, yeah, right? And these design frameworks, it's also important to keep in mind, they kind of came along as a natural progression out of necessity. Yeah. Because if we look at the landscape before Bootstrap came out in 2012, websites took a lot of upfront investment, they were costly, um, and they were very, uh, everyone was kind of just doing their own thing, mm-hmm. right? They're very inconsistent. And design frameworks perfectly solve for all three of those pain points. Um, Mm -hmm. And so kind of the consistencies and the standards that they fell upon as these are what we should all be doing, Mm -hmm. uh, there are actually some pretty good practices. It's not that we should always be doing best practices, like everything is very context-based, but for the low-level sites that or for just the mass amount of sites that are adopting Bootstrap and adopting these design frameworks, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. They're far more accessible as a result. They're far easier to use and digest and retrieve information information out of them. They're just far more usable overall. Right. I think that this, this more than anything, goes back to the why mm-hmm. of this argument, and that is why, why are these design patterns happening? And I think that the, really what we're getting back to with all of this is function. And there are multiple different functions that these design patterns serve, whether it be from a usability perspective, an aesthetic perspective, um, a dev perspective, an efficiency Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, A parallel, I think a great parallel that you can draw with the sort of bootstrapped websites to something that exists in, you know, the, in our medium of tangible in the real world is uh, look at the side profile of supercars. This is an argument that I gave to somebody online. Um, and if you if you take a, I don't know, if, if you take a Pagani Huayra, a uh, Ferrari Enzo, a Lamborghini Aventador. This is the point where we realize that Austin knows a lot more about cars <laughs> than I do. If you, if you take all of, all of your favorite supercars from, you know, the last hundred years, right? Uh, And you look at them from the side, you'll notice that they all follow this general line, right? It's like they're low in the front, they take an aggressive slant up over the hood, and then a very slight slant 
low, you know, up over the windshield to the roof, and then there's like a, a long curve off the back, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll see, to the point where you there's actually like very, very minimalistic line drawings of a profile of a supercar. And if you put them in front of people, they will identify them as different supercars. Like, it's just a very, I've done this before, it's a very simple line drawing of like, the, the top of the car and then you put the wheel wells in there and then like the bottom of the car and you put it in front of people and they'll be like, oh, that's a, Lamb that's a Lamborghini Gallardo. That's a Ferrari F40. And they all identified as like a different car, but it's actually just a generic profile because all of these cars fo follow a general profile. Now, is this because Pina Farina is completely unimaginative and for the last 60 years they've been designing the same car over and over and over again is this because Bertoni can't come up with a better Lamborghini design these are some of the best design studios in the world with some of the brightest minds in industrial design is it really that they just want to keep designing the same thing over and over and over again or is it because these designs and this general profile and shape of the car serves a certain function. Is there not a certain way that air works, mm -hmm. right? Do aerodynamics not somehow calculate into that design? Of course, there are nuances mm -hmm. between you know what you would see in a Ferrari F40 and what you would see in a Ferrari F430. Right. Um, but the general way that the car is designed remains the same. And you can apply that back to what to digital medium design. I really as like well. that analogy because what that says to me mm -hmm. is that websites, modern websites that follow this kind of bootstrappy look, uh, they do they do serve that function as you're saying. But it also kind of says that hey, you know what? The meat and potatoes of your website, what sets you apart is your content, and mm -hmm. what sets you apart is your brand, and what mm -hmm. sets you apart is the imagery that you use. You know, it's not the design of your website that really says who you are. It's you saying who you are. I yeah, and which and is at a the very same time as, message, I think. as a call to action for designers, I think you know you you look at look at the um, the Ferraris that were produced in the 1960s, the Ferraris that were produced in the 1980s, and the Ferraris that were produced that are being produced today, and you'll see that yes, my statement holds true that they all have a same general sort of profile shape. But then you look at the inno amazing innovations that have happened within these cars mm -hmm. over you know, the, the past several decades, and it'll blow your mind what these people are doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the point is that we have to recognize that these functional design patterns, just because they're being reproduced in multiple places, does not diminish the function that they have. That is not where the innovation is supposed to be happening. Mm -hmm. If something works, and it works really, really well, then that's that's something that we should maintain for our users. The oh, innovation should be happening in other areas of opportunity, and this could be in micro iterations or in new ways to solve uh, new new solutions, better solutions to problems that we thought were solved a while ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, I think that that we we really have to change the way that we think about innovation in design, and we have to respect the function of certain design patterns, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so so copy copy culture, crap content, those th those are those are real issues, but I think that again we have to approach that through the lens of why. 
Um, loss of jobs. We we mentioned mentioned that one, right? And we said and like I think that just falls apart so quickly. Like yeah. that's not even worth really going too too much deeper into. Mm-hmm. And the the magazine debate as well. Like yes, I think that it does in it's it's contextual again. I think that in some cases it does make sense for you to invest that amount of time and loving care into your content. If that's part of your content strategy, there are certainly blogs that I follow that do that. And I really appreciate how much attention to detail they, they craft into those articles. They're just so interactive and beautiful and everything just works together so well and it creates this incredible experience that just keeps me coming back. But I don't necessarily expect that of every blog, mm-hmm. right? And if you're, let's say, a tech blog out there and I follow lots of tech blogs, I don't expect you to do that for every tech review for smartphones or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Um, and in a sense, like they're also trying, like their sites serve a purpose. They want to grab my email. They want me to uh, retain as a user. They want me to click advertising, whatever it might be in their funnel. Um, And that kind of attention to detail doesn't always translate into meeting those business needs. Right. So you think about a magazine, which is like the example that the author gave. The the magazine is something that the user already paid for. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're trying to figure out how you make paid publications on the web. Nobody's quite cracked it yet, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, magazines don't exactly translate into the web. Mm-hmm. But the, the magazine, the value that exists in the magazine is you pay for the magazine and then I have to deliver you exceptional content. Mm-hmm. That's not how the web works, right? Nope. There's There is no intrinsic value in... Uh, articles that are being read on the web. And so companies are, are leveraging web content in a completely different way than they than uh, companies leverage magazine content, right? Where it's like, okay, you're not going to pay for this content, but we're going to optimize it in a way to where we can, you know, make this uh, af- an affordable thing for us to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you said, that could be some type of a CTA conversion, an, an email submission, um, a, an ad impression, right. whatever it may be. Yeah, so I think that when we take a step back from this, this article, mm-hmm. um, I think that there are certainly pieces missing from it. I think that uh, the argument about why it's bad that all websites look the same today has holes in it. Mm-hmm. I also think that there's a lot of validity to it yeah. and there's a lot of concern in it. And I think the same about the argument about why it's good. And mm-hmm. I think that if we're going to move forward as a, as an industry and as a community, uh, we need to acknowledge that we need yeah. to realize that, Hey, all websites look the same. This is a fact. This is perhaps the natural progression of where the web was heading mm-hmm. and there was nothing we could do to stop it. There was this like buildup of demand for, uh, websites that you can just get up quickly that look mm-hmm. good and professional. There was a legit need for that. And as a result, we've seen that just grow on a massive scale, and which, of course, led to this problem that we're now talking about. That's the state of the world. We can't change that. Um, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Who knows? We, we're going to find out in the next five years. Things are going to continue to progress, mm-hmm. and it's up to us to decide how they progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that discussing this is it might be good, it's, it, but I don't think that really arguing it and saying it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad, and just going back and forth and just kind of like tearing each other apart, we're not going to get anywhere, and yeah. it's pointless because so, we're both we're all right about it. You know? So a really easy way to think about this is let's take the sites that are winning awards today, mm-hmm. right? 
and so on awards.com um, the you know the future web whatever right what future future web awards or whatever they are uh, you'll notice that they're beautiful to mm -hmm. look at they have sound there's um, interesting interactions that happen with them they're trying very new things they're exploring yeah. new territory yes but none of them are usable mm -hmm. right uh, and, and you know it's like it's not it, it's not um, inherently obvious to the user that when they land on a site uh, that they can't navigate with their mouse, they actually need to use their keyboard. Mm -hmm. That's not very intuitive. Yet these sites, they're, they're trying to change things and, and like, you know, breach those boundaries and everything like that. Some of them totally don't work in certain browsers or load really weird or throw different things around your screen or you can't consume certain types of content. But from an aesthetic side, they're completely pushing things forward. And then we go to the other side of it and we look at these really, really prototypical bootstrapped startup type sites. Um, and, and we see something that is like always, always the same. And it seems as it's like, it's just completely focused on conversion. It's like pure business mm -hmm. function, right? There's, I think that what we have to pull out is like, what's happening here, you know? Um, and that we need to understand like, what are the reasons why we're seeing these, these patterns on the web, and what are the, the patterns that are really critical to making the web tick? You know, like you would never have, going back to the supercar example, you'd never have somebody at Pina Farina say, you know what, I think that the best way that we can create the, the greatest Ferrari post Enzo mm -hmm. is by taking the wheels off of the Ferrari. <laughs> because you know what? Every car I've seen so far has wheels on it. And or we're going to voice <laughs> activate the acceleration so that yeah. when you sing, you go faster. <laughs> right, exactly. So you, you, you need to figure out, like, what are those core elements? Is it, is it those button, those CTA mm -hmm. design patterns? Is it this scrollability? Is it the, you know, the interaction? This is what the keyboard does. This is what the mouse does. That stuff mm -hmm. stays the same. Um, and those things, those should be the, you know, it's like every car has an engine, every car has a frame, every car, uh, for the most part, has doors, uh, every car has wheels. Mm -hmm. You have to have headlights and you have to have taillights. These are things that make right. cars work. These bootstrap things that we're seeing, a lot of these things are things that make sites work for their users. Um, and then we have to pick out what are the things that aren't in the meat of the, these designs, and those are the areas where we innovate, you know, and whether that be the you know the certain curvature of the design of the car uh, or the color of the car or whatever that might be the same thing can be applied to websites what are these other pieces that are not as good as they could be or are purely aesthetic that we can totally innovate on and that's what we should be focusing our effort mm -hmm. on it's taking a deeper understanding of the site than just looking at it and saying these all look the same i'm mad yeah. and, and understanding why do these look the same and where are the areas that we should be innovating right because you can still absolutely take advantage of these prototypical design patterns, these really great things that make your site usable, but you can add your own twist to it. And mm -hmm. another uh, last point that we'll touch on for the design machines, there's a quote in there that I like, which is that when everything looks gray, a touch of color is that much more noticeable. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you could also look at this from the perspective of this is an opportunity, opportunity. to stand out, Yeah, uh, which is interesting. So on that note, that's how we feel about this article. We were very torn when we read it mm -hmm. for the first time. Austin and I went back. We're like, oh, what are they saying? Like, so much of this feels wrong, but so much of it feels right. Like, yeah. we just didn't know how to feel about it. Uh, and then we had this debate over and over again with, with people in real life and on the Internet. And we just kind of came to the, the conclusion that 
um, we need to approach this from a different perspective, yeah, which is yeah. what we've been talking about. So um, we're going to all we'll link to the article in mm-hmm. the description of this episode. If you guys want to check it out, it's really, it's a great article. You can tell that the author put a lot of time into it, both from a content perspective and a design and development perspective. Um, and there's a lot of other great content out there about this as well. Mm-hmm. If you have an opinion personally on anything that we talked about here today, please uh, reach out to us. You can tweet to us. We've got all of our Twitter handles in the description. And you can also email us at hello at uxandgrowth.com. With that, uh, Matt and I are going to head off to a tech talk at Twitter uh, Jeff is actually going to that too, which I think that that says something about his character. Like he's he's too good for the podcast, but he's not too good for Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad he threw the insult in at the end. Yeah, we had to do one. <laughs> All right, have a great day, everybody.